have no idea where this will lead us, but I have a definite feeling it will be a place both wonderful and strange. So speaking of lines, we have to follow the line back over to Leland Palmer. Oh, no. We get a decent amount of information on it, on Leland. I guess one question I have is, do you think if you had read this book in between seasons one and two, like let's imagine we read this book in our podcast before season two, because again, it was released before season two. Yeah. Would you have guessed Leland is the killer? Um, maybe. It's like, a big what if, right? It's a big what if, because I can say in my mindset now and looking at the pieces, yeah, it looks noticeable. But then again, I would be more notable to look out for things like that. Yeah. So uh, it, it, I don't want to make a bias where I seem more intelligent than I actually am. Well, this is as good a point of any to ask that question then. Do you think for your own self and for general, do you yeah. think that someone should read the diary before season two? I think that at the very least, when someone should read the diary, it should be either A, after Leland is revealed and what happens to Leland happens, mm -hmm. uh, just so we can get the full Maddie Ferguson content too, Yeah. Uh, or B, read it after the series like I did. So you would not recommend reading it after season one finale? I don't necessarily recommend it. I think that, yes, it can like pepper in some feelings for people as they go through it. But I think that it's more impactful in retrospect than it is going forward. I would agree with you too. And it was something I was kind of weighing in my head when we were thinking about Twin Peaks is when to have you read this for the podcast. We should have started with the return to Twin Peaks. I've heard people start backwards. with the return and that seems like the absolute worst idea. No, me. no, no. I, I didn't finish. Start with the return, but go through it backwards. Like the last oh. episode of return and just work progressively backwards. There are some people who probably think that's the best way to understand it. So <laughs> I, I, I that's wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> and strange. Yeah. It's something. Uh, so Leland Palmer, we can't avoid him forever. <laughs> That's a beautiful tagline. Leland Palmer, we can't have won him forever. So we know that Laura Palmer said when she was 12 that in her childhood, she and her dad both liked the woods a lot. Yeah. Which again, talk about something being recontextualized if you finish the series. Yeah. They have that connection in common, the woods. Now, one clue you could argue from the diary is that where does she usually encounter Bob? The woods. There's a lot of references to the woods with Bob. Yeah, like the woods of the house. So we, we get the sense that she and Leland would go out to the woods. Now, yeah. we can hopefully believe that most of that was innocent, that Bob wasn't in control, that it was genuinely Leland with no Bob, and they were just having an innocent outing. But in truth, <sighs> like, there is that layer of, like, Leland who has said that he came across Bob around the lakes, which yes. would be around the woods, so... Oof. And then there's the question of how much does Laura not remember because she's repressing it. Yeah. And that's the dark area of this book as well as that we know all the horrifying. A dark area. A dark area is that we know all the horrifying things that Laura is aware of. What had happened to her when she was younger that she might have blocked out. Mm -hmm. So when she went to the woods with Leland, was it just a, you know, nature walk or was there something more insidious happening there? Um, judging from the list that Laura puts up, uh, probably maybe something more at some mm. time mm -hmm. because the first letter in the list of people that she's been with is the letter B. Well, we know that that happened later on. We have pretty good context for that. The question is how young was she when that happened? And yep. it's a question I hate to ask, but worth considering here with this book is how long had 
in some form, Leland or Bob been with her. It's important when we have to discuss Bob, when yeah. we have to discuss Leland's condition. And what is Bob versus what is Leland? I mean, according to Leland's doppelganger, I did not kill anybody. And like I mentioned before, is that Bob talking or right. is that Leland we talking? We came up with like a Punnett square of oh, ideas God. on that one. And I don't claim to know the answer. Mm-hmm. I-, I can say that even from my vantage point, the line between what is Bob and what is Leland has always been blurred and has always been purposefully blurred. Yeah. We're not meant to have an answer. I think extremes are wrong. I think if someone says that everything that is bad that happens to Laura is all Bob, mm-hmm. I think that's wrong. Mm-hmm. If someone says that everything bad happens to Laura is all Leland, I think that's wrong. Mm-hmm. I think there's got to be a sense of both. Mm-hmm. Now, 70-30, 50-50, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't claim to know. Mm-hmm. I, I, but I think that to say Leland's innocent in this matter, I, I think is a stretch. I think that, as I mentioned before in the last episode, Leland too is pitiable. It does not condone his actions or it does not avail him of yeah. responsibilities. But at the same time, he was not fully in his right mind and likely suffered from what could be the equivalent, though I will not say that it is, of a mental illness. It's, it's quite possible that if we take his stories about Pearl Lakes to be quite serious, that he had been shown Bob at a young age as a boy at their, at their summer camp, he might be a victim of trauma himself. Maybe. Uh, and we that, don't know much about Grandpa at all. And, and I'd be inclined to believe personally for myself as well that he was a victim of trauma at a young age, that a wound had been opened up where Bob could enter through. And I think there's that sense in which... Again, it does not condone, does not justify, Mm -hmm. but we might be looking at Leland as a trauma victim with serious repressed emotional baggage that Mm -hmm. is, meanwhile, been also supernaturally possessed. It is. Because Bob seems to be an actual supernatural entity in this book. It is a legacy of horrible situations, and unfortunately, uh, Leland was a part of a place that did not help him, Uh, and I don't know if there's many people that could have helped him. I mean, our best figure for mental health is someone who even does not like his position yeah. with Jacoby. Who doesn't really care about anyone. Laura's the only one Jacoby seems to actually have an interest in. And the only person we've seen him be successful with. Uh, argue- Benjamin Horn? Benjamin Horn, and that's arguable. an arguable situation. Yeah. We do get a rare insight with Leland's relationship with Sarah Palmer, his yeah. wife. And part of it we get through Laura's lens of seeing them making love. Mm-hmm. And making love, I think, is a strong way to put it because the way Laura describes it it looks like neither of them are really enjoying the act. Yeah. It's slow and uninteresting to both of them. It's almost just like a thing they do, mm-hmm. but not something they necessarily pursue. Mm-hmm. It is just a genuine activity off to the side. And again, there are some very toxic things that go on with this. Yeah. I don't know... Uh, Say, for example, how much in the right mind Sarah may have been in those instances yes. because of what we know happened. We know that he... He, Leland slash Bob, is not above drugging Sarah Palmer. Yeah. So, again, questions. Yes. Bob, at one point, when speaking to slash through Laura in the diary, says that her parents stopped loving each other a long time ago, and now they're just going through the motions. So if we go Mm -hmm. by Bob's input, which Bob's in Leland's thoughts. Bob is an illegal, but he's also an unreliable narrator. If there ever was one, a an unreliable narrator, and B, hey, there is a question on if Laura Palmer's Bob is the same thing as Leland yes. Palmer's Bob, because yes. this might just be, let's say, for example, Laura's anxieties or mistrusts speaking mm-hmm. up. It might be an exploitation on Bob's part, whatever Bob may be. Yeah, and then the last category, I guess, I really had here was just the general sense of Leland's 
nature in the book and kind yeah. of the wickedness that we do see. One part that really jumped out at me, it's again, one of the more graphic and concerning descriptions in the book mm-hmm. is there's a moment where Laura is wondering prior to her first sexual encounter, how men's genitals would look. Yes. And the only context she's had from a human male is her father when she saw his. Yep. Now it's implied that that's when she saw her mother and father making love. Uh-huh. Um, let us hope that that is where that context comes from. But she describes her dad's member as looking raw, as if it had once been good, but something went wrong with it. Mm-hmm. And now she describes it as all pink and weird. Mm-hmm. And if we want to read into that, that's a big yikes. That's a big yikes. To though. put it put it very euphemistically. That is something that is, well... <laughs> it's one of the words. biggest clues, I would say, if you're looking at Leland as Bob in this book. Yep. Is the sense that that part of him that is hidden away and is used... Excessively. Used excessively in secretive dark ways looks that way. Yep. That there's a disfiguration underneath it all. Mm. I think it's an especially strong, evocative moment. And from Laura's perspective, it is all the more striking and concerning. Yes. And I'm glad that it's included in the book, but it also is one of the harder to read sections mm. is, is to get that moment. And we don't get her pondering on that later after the fact. It, it just seems like in that moment of clarity, she kind of thought about how that looked. Yes. And we don't get her comparing that later on in life. So I do get the sense that there was something especially off there that she never saw in her numerous encounters with other men later. Yeah. Oh. Which again, for how many men were inclined she was with, the fact that she noticed something being off about him mm-hmm. and not really anyone else mm-hmm. says something. It does. And, and it makes you wonder how much Sarah Palmer sees these things. Um, how much is her vision without any sort of things that to cloud it? We, we know that she's been like, whenever she's going through grief, the doctors are giving her something to kind of take away the pain yeah. and take away almost the consciousness. It feels like, uh-huh. and Leland, we've seen drug her. We get little inclinations in the diary that she does drink. Now, mm-hmm. is it enough to say she's alcoholic? No, but we do get descriptions that when she's at the dinner parties, like the Haywards, mm-hmm. she'll get drinking and she'll start slipping out some stories and kind of not really, not really gossip per se. Yeah. But she starts to loosen the lips a little bit there. Yeah. I think that there's also something notable choosing the alcohol problem. I think that that might even be a point where Bob could exploit more yes. because that slipping something in the drink is probably the most risky thing. Hey, listeners, please do, please do. Keep to your own drinks. Never yeah. drink someone else's drinks. Uh, make sure that it's in your hand. Even all if the time. it's someone you feel you know well. Yeah. A lot is. of times it's the people you know well that are close to you that you really got to be careful about. You, you got to be careful about this genuinely. So I hope everyone is well and safe out there. Mm-hmm. And so we have situations that are fairly on their own, rather innocent and benign, that at the dinner parties, Sarah Palmer will share kind of embarrassing stories about Laura, about her dreams. And there's one that you had to have noted on where Laura doesn't remember dreaming, but apparently in her sleep, she'd been calling her mom's name out and hooting like an owl. Yeah. Which I mean, at this point, owls, they weren't as weird yet because this was released before season two. This was before the line, the owls are not what they seem. Honestly, this was like early owl content. We need more owls around here to just watch us during the podcast, just to emphasize how important they are. Do not get a pet owl, please. Uh, Actually, I do have a little owl statue that, uh, let me see if I can find it. Why have you set this next to me? What even is it? It's like a bust. 
of like a gentleman with an owl head. Yep, I think it's best to have it in these situations. So from this podcast onward, uh, that will be our go-to owl, which we will place down for the podcast purposes. I'm turning it to look at you and not me. <laughs> I want you to be judged. <laughs> and and I imagine judged is how Laura felt when her mom is slipping out these dreams. Mm-hmm. But again, on its own, fairly innocent, although it does leave the idea that there's an area of trust being violated. Yes. That Laura is in her sleep in a vulnerable state hooting like an owl, and the mom is comfortable sharing that. I imagine that's a common thing, though, for the moms to share embarrassing stories that their kids do, because in Sarah's mind, it's just a cute thing her daughter does that's funny. <laughs> and again, she's a little little yeah. on the edge of the alcohol that it's just she's letting some stories slip. Yeah, uh, which is not so comfortable for Laura for obvious reasons. More concerning is that there are moments Laura writes in the diary, she says, sometimes mom and I have the same thoughts, the same dreams. And... Despite the fact that Sarah Palmer's implied to have dreams the way that Maddie and Laura do. Yeah. And that I imagine those dreams may or may not involve Bob, considering that she lives in this household. Yeah. And she's seen Bob in the series. When Laura explains her nightmares to Sarah Palmer, Sarah just explains it as puberty. Mm-hmm. Sarah w- just whisks it away. She gives a talk about the birds and the bees, about babies, about birth control. And Laura's just having to sit through this wanting to hit her. That's how Laura describes it. Mm -hmm. Because everyone around her just keeps thinking all that she's going through is puberty and adolescence when really there's something more going on. Yeah. And the fact that her mother is doing that, when her mother seems to experience dreams, she doesn't take it seriously. We have to just consider on how present she even is through it and what she could even say in her general condition. I think that there might mm-hmm. also be a question on just the general lineage as well on these people, yeah. uh, the Palmer and Ferguson yeah. households on maybe that having more of those experiences is a part of their puberty. Uh, I wish that we had explored the idea and these concepts more with them talking, but it doesn't seem that there was the healthiest of communication or relationships between Laura Palmer's anxieties as well as generally Sarah Palmer's passiveness. There's so much in this book that it, there's obviously a lot of supernatural elements and things that are not relatable. Yeah. That are very, very fictional. But I think one of the overrunning themes of the story is how a young woman or a girl turning into a young woman Mm -hmm. can experience puberty and puberty acting as a wall or a barrier between people and also a great agent of change in relationships that I almost imagine maybe Laura's relationship with his, her mother was stronger before puberty. But on the onset of adolescence, so much changed for Laura that her old friendships, her old family connections got called into question more. Yeah. It became another barrier that other people could just look at her and be like, oh, she's just going through puberty when she was going through so much more than that. In truth, like a lot of her experiences, she felt that was too unique to her and all these unreliable outlets that just didn't understand her as she grew up. That consumed her more and more. Whereas if there had been more communication and more safety nets, a lot of the things that she was going through, I would assume are not singular. Obviously, Bob and the dreams, yes, they're supernatural things. But a lot of the fantasies she was experiencing and the sexual awakening, that's a thing that girls can go through, or boys for that matter. And it's one of those things that if there had been more communication from her friends and family, how much weaker Bob's presence could have been. He could have been really weakened. And we do see Laura Palmer's presence as a individual within the Black Lodge. Yeah. Uh, black-eyed, if you will, 
regular colored eyes, mind you, yeah. instead of the white eyes. I think that her and all these sort of conflicts in which she felt may have been unique to herself, that needs to try to uh, figure that out, but still being caught in that conflict. I mean, who better to be amongst the Black Lodge who is about trying yeah. to grind people and those ideals out? Well, and I also want to just, again, mention, I think that Laura Palmer's presence, both as a doppelganger, but also as a non-doppelganger, is fascinating, considering that the only other people who are shown to be non-doppelganger-eyed are either, like, spirits of the Lodge or people we saw going into the door, like Wyndham Earl, Annie, and Cooper. Yeah. So Laura, as far as we know, isn't alive walking through the portal and isn't a Lodge spirit, as far as we can tell. I'll also mention here, the Z-Day collection apparently has stills for different people to sit in the Black Lodge. The one that they have in default is that iconic thing of Laura Palmer and Cooper kissing. Yeah. Uh, I can't wait to see what other stills can be sitting sure. in that room. Uh, yeah. Oh, no. There's a moment where, going back to Sarah Palmer, that Laura speculates she and her mom could be friends and her mom probably could relate to a lot of her experiences. Uh -huh. But her mom comes from a generation of people who don't talk about their feelings or experiences, and they're not vulnerable with each other. Yes. So Laura seems to pin it to a generational standpoint as well, that if her mom would be willing to talk about these things with her daughter, that Laura and Sarah Palmer could be close as mother and daughter if they were willing to talk about those things. Mm -hmm. But because her mother makes assumptions and jumps to conclusions and won't really talk about it, yes. Laura feels like she can't open up. Yeah. Which again, I feel like I'm not trying to blame Sarah Palmer. She seems to be a victim in this situation too, from what we can tell of what's going on, but it still feels like Sarah Palmer was one in one of the critical positions to help. Mm -hmm. And there's that idea that all it takes for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. Or in this case, good moms to do nothing. Good it, anyone it, to do anything. Yes. Like she had no one. Like if we look at Donna disconnect, if we look at someone like Sarah disconnect, if we look all over the board disconnect, even when she found points of connections, there was still disconnect, disconnect, disconnect mm -hmm. with nearly every single one of her relationships. Mm -hmm. If anything, the only one that seemed to work out best for her, sadly, was the Bob one. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of the relationships that were the least clearly healthy for her were the ones that felt the closest. Yeah. Um, I think you end up with individuals like Leo, Jacques, and Renette understanding Laura better than her old family and friends by the end of things. Yeah, which, uh, by the way, we'll get towards that. And the very interesting perspectives. Yes. Uh, as far as yes. that goes. So many characters to get through. We'll get there. But yeah, it's crazy. Uh, the last thing I have on Sarah Palmer is there's a moment where we mentioned earlier where Maddie is psychically called and then Maddie calls her back on like the actual phone. And it's a moment where Laura had been kind of dodging her mom's conversation about how things are going. Correct. Typical, you know, teen girl stereotypical, like it's fine. Don't worry about it, mom. <sighs> Which again, given the context, we know why she doesn't open up to her mom. Yep. And <laughs> when Laura gets the call from Maddie, she looks down the stairs and sees her mom and there's this look, look of pure jealousy as Laura sees it at least. Mm -hmm. So if Laura's viewpoint is to be taken at face value, Sarah Palmer seems to be fiercely jealous of the fact that Laura is opening up more to Maddie than to herself. And uh -huh. there's almost a darkness to that that I think is very interesting. Just for a, just for a brief moment mm -hmm. that shows through, mm -hmm. which is probably one of the more emotionally honest moments we saw between Sarah and Laura. Mm -hmm. And how sad is that? Yeah. That the most emotionally honest we see the mom be is when she's jealous of her daughter talking more to her cousin. It's his very... Uh, oh, no. This, th this was just not a... 
really great household for anyone to be in. Yeah, I thought Sarah Palmer's involvement in the book is one of the more fascinating elements personally. Yeah. Because it's a character that is so much ignored for the rest of season two. Yep. And there's just that moment where we're just talking about, please, someone check on Sarah Palmer. Because <laughs> we, now that we know kind of what Sarah Palmer's like, imagine she's been alone in this house now for weeks and months with no Leland, no Laura, no Maddie, because they're all dead. Which, by And the, she has that on her conscience. Which, by the way, Dr. Jacoby leads her over, so that leads into a different scenario. Yeah, either that a, her one reprieve is Jacoby. Oh, no. Which, either A, she is seeking out therapy for some of her probably loneliness and problems, and something might have popped out during that time. Yeah. Or B, another reality where the Black Lodge residents know Jacoby's number, in well, which I think that's... <laughs> I'm also concerned what is Jacoby prescribing her. Yeah. Because Jacoby feels like someone who'd be a little loose with his prescriptions because we know that he viewed cocaine as self-medication. Yeah. He spoke positively of Laura's self-medicating tendencies. Mm -hmm. Yikes. Jacoby is someone who I think the more you learn about Laura, and you know that Jacoby knew a lot of this. Jaco like, Laura would go out of her way to shock Jacoby. He mm -hmm. knew this stuff, and he still thought the drugs were a good thing for her. Ah. <sighs> Now, Jacoby, granted, please, like, no, someone take that math permit away, I mean, please. granted, if she hadn't done them, would it be better or worse? Uh, that's so hard to determine. Mm -hmm. But to call this healthy by any means, to call this self-medicating, is so beyond the pale of logic for any decent person that it really calls into question what Jacoby's like. And you want a pop figure of this man. He looks cool. <laughs> I'd say he's that, that's a one positive. I, I can mean, if I him. had a pop Funko figure of Bob, it doesn't mean I'm a crazy killer man. It just means he's got a cool design. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Jacoby's uh -huh. one of the more striking visually characters. He's, uh, he's really interesting to look at. I agree with that. I agree that he should be holding a few items inside of his hands he's, if we are to get to him. He's like visually arresting and he should be arrested. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll word it that way. There we go. Speaking of should be arrested, Benjamin <laughs> Horn... <laughs> Okay, there's not a lot of levity in this podcast, so I'll, I'll take it where I can. Yeah. Um, Benjamin Horn, I've mentioned it before in the episode, and I couldn't really reveal all my hand in it, but mm -hmm. I've consistently found Benjamin Horn's character to be one of my favorites, mm -hmm. and I think the element of his connection with Laura Palmer is very interesting, mm -hmm. and it's one of the most gray, murky elements, I would say, of Ben's character mm -hmm. in the sense that during the show, we have numerous indications that he keeps photos of Laura Palmer and that he is someone thinking about Laura Palmer way after everyone else has pretty much stopped. Yes. And that the way he responds to Audrey when he starts, you know, going into carrot mode, he starts to think about Audrey and how he can better their relationship. I almost feel like that was the moment, because he worded it like, thinking of Laura, now I want to be better with you, Audrey. It's like he finally, at whatever point, he got to a point where he started to recognize Audrey as his daughter and start to treat her better. Yeah. And... It's so concerning because on one hand, Ben, I think, genuinely cared about Laura and saw her as almost like a child to himself. Yes. A, someone, it's almost like how a lot of grandparents will pamper a grandkid because they don't have to deal with the kid. They just get to see him <laughs> now and then and give him gifts and make them smile. Which and is how genuinely heartwarming that can be. Which is hilarious since like he kind of had that situation with Donna almost. He almost did, right? <laughs> so I, I feel like with Laura... There was that sense of this is someone he can dote on and give gifts with. He mm -hmm. didn't do that with Audrey. Mm -hmm. I feel like Sarah, I feel like um, Sylvia Horn probably would have put a kibosh to that. I feel like Sylvia got in the way of that. And then, at least from Ben's perspective. Yeah. And then he couldn't really do that with Donna because he didn't want anyone finding out that was his kid. Mm -hmm. So it was plausible deniability with Laura, though, because it was his co it was his coworkers 
or his lawyer's daughter. Yes. Someone who had reason to be there enough, someone he could shower gifts with. And again, I want to believe there was a genuine, authentic, healthy love for this child and support uh. that over time became twisted. I don't believe, this is personal headcanon, I don't believe that Ben had any sort of gross dealings with Laura until much later. I don't believe that his involvement with Laura was anything other than good-natured and genuine until the point where she started working at One-Eyed Jacks. At that moment, the fact that Ben would sleep with Laura is extremely concerning for Laura's and Ben's psychological states. Yep. That Laura, who grew up knowing this man the way she did, and for Ben, knowing Laura as he did, it's deeply disconcerting and again, it speaks volumes about both their characters. We didn't have a lot necessarily in here about Ben other than the stuff with Troy. Yeah. But the things we did have in here are eye-opening. Yeah. Uh, I think that there's a lot of eye-opening things to the corruption of Ben. I don't know if I necessarily fully agree with your end, but oof. About uh, which part? Uh, with generally what it started out as. Mm. Um, not only is there a sort of appeal that Laura Palmer can give off, and maybe there might be argue that there <laughs> is a little bit of mystical influence from sure. outside bounds that right. may have aided it. But let's not forget when Laura Palmer had quote unquote died. I say quote unquote because <laughs> you know, yeah, uh, we know. did have that one person that <laughs> could help service Ben and Jerry during their time at One Eye Jacks that looked awfully familiar if you I, catch my I, I still find that interesting. I have never thought that actress looks like Laura Palmer. It, she looks so a lot I, like I, me. I think that's really interesting. I don't it, just... It's so weirdly centered and so weirdly focused if it mm. isn't that case because elsewise, it's just employing the thought that they have fun here. Yeah. But, For listeners who don't remember this moment, when we saw One Eye Jacks, I think it was like the first time, there was mm -hmm. all the girls being presented. Mm -hmm. There was the one that Ben was going with, the new girl, yes. who... The professor thought looked an awful lot like Laura Palmer. She does look a lot like. Laura I don't think Palmer. she even has a name, so I can't like look her up easily. What she looked like, uh -huh. but I, I always found that really interesting. I didn't want to give you a hint either way, but I've never <laughs> thought that, and I, okay. I, I think that interpretation is really curious. We know that Ben almost did sleep with Audrey. Yeah, but that was something where he didn't know that. Nope, he didn't consciously do that but that's another footnote in here that it's amazing that that didn't have more repercussions than it did mm -hmm. you almost think like with season two how could audrey's stomach being around her father i almost feel like that got waved away a little bit as time went on that audrey shouldn't have wanted anything to do with him to the effect that she did but as soon as he went into civil war mode she tried to bring him back just like everyone else and when he came back with carrots she was on his side I think that there was a lot of, and I'm not saying it's the right decision, and I don't think that many people might come to that conclusion. I think the more likely outcome is as what you've stated. But I think that there's been something implied with the character of Andre growing up a lot and wanting to preserve the things she thinks is important to mm -hmm. herself, uh, finding the things that she finds will help her growth. I mean, the way that even though sometimes unsuccessful, the way that she sort of speaks and stands up to her father while also trying to take more responsible roles around the home after all those events um, I think might be important enough to her especially with trying to maybe even push Ben in a better direction uh, af especially after and during his meltdown and I think the diary contents really recontextualize then Audrey's motivations when she does initially try to solve the murder yeah that knowing that Audrey and Laura were not close at all nope. if anything 
Laura was keenly aware of Audrey's jealousy and emotional state that Audrey would go running to her room crying because her dad was like putting Laura on his lap and singing songs and giving her ponies and gifts. And Mm. Audrey wasn't getting that. Yeah. And so Audrey was jealous of Laura for so long and you can kind of tell the difference in their personalities. Audrey's someone who's constantly has a personality of mischief and like messing with things and kind of, Oh, Audrey, why are you doing that? Audrey, these are important papers. Audrey, stop doing this. And Mm -hmm. Laura's just the sweet, innocent girl that no one really seems to understand has that darkness. Mm -hmm. And early on, like episode one, two, pilot, Audrey says that she knew... (laughs) The order of that just sounds hilarious. Uh, Audrey was saying that she knew Laura better than she thinks a lot of people do. And I'm inclined to believe Audrey was right. I think Audrey knew the darkness in Laura because she saw the way that Laura would use Ben that way. She Mm -hmm. saw the way that Laura was willing to twist the knife and actually hurt Audrey Mm -hmm. and enjoy the power of that. And I think considering, even though she didn't know all the dealings with her father, I think she had enough exposure to people of shady, dubious character mm-hmm. that I think she could see through uh, Laura's veneer a bit better than most others. I think that solving a little bit of, mer- uh, of the mystery may have revealed more about Laura that maybe she may or may not have been fully aware of how much Ben may have known. Yeah. And maybe that would have recontextualized things. Maybe that could have even helped Ben with a little bit of closure uh, at the time. And who knows how his reaction would have been in that context. Unfortunately, everything went a little bit wild. <laughs> I-, I thought Audrey was the appropriate amount for the book. I think having more Audrey wouldn't have made sense mm-hmm. for Laura's story. Mm-hmm. I think, but I think the fact that Audrey's in there about as much as James, yeah. again, goes back to how little James matters. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I get you. At the end of the day, Audrey's almost in there more than James. Yes. So one more Horn character shows up in the book, and that's Johnny Horn. I'm really happy we got some context for Johnny a bit in here. He's uh, a character that gets overlooked a lot in the show. Yeah, but he was important enough to Laura, or yes. at least her past, that, yeah, we could argue with James, but that would be far less of an interesting angle, I would say. Yeah, I'm much glad to have, much more happy to have Johnny Horn content than James. Yep, I think that we all can agree. Isn't that right, <laughs> audience? Good. <laughs> this podcast is brought to you by Dora the Explorer. <laughs> not, actually, not, not sponsored. sponsored by Dora the Explorer, <laughs> but by Boots... Not sponsored. So, Johnny Horn. There's this sense of mutual understanding between Laura and Johnny where Laura feels that Johnny understands her better than a lot of people. Yeah. And then Laura, in turn, feels like she can understand Johnny a bit. Yeah. She feels she understands why he's quiet, and she describes his sort of inner world, quote, a strange world of pain and of childhood mystery, or child mystery. Mm-hmm. Um, so it makes sense why later in the book she starts tutoring Johnny, And the primary reason she gives it first is because there's that sense that Johnny doesn't use her. Johnny doesn't hurt her or judge her. Yeah. Unfortunately, there's also the side benefit that she wants to use the money for drugs. That she wants to use the 200 a month she's going to get to buy cocaine. Yeah. So as with a lot of things in Laura's life, a lot of the good intentions are underscored by bad. And a lot of the bad intentions have an element of good in them too. Mm -hmm. That everything comes with pain and pleasure being mixed with her. Yes. Johnny's involvement overall, aside from the money being used for Coke, mm-hmm. it seems like one of the most exclusively positive involvements in her life. Yep. That it's almost a form of spiritual healing for her. Yeah. It's um it's probably harkens to the days in which like she had to take care of well, her horse for a time, mm-hmm. in which it's someone that she could attend to and work with and may not have had the same abilities to sort of communicate as 
the usual people do. Yeah. Um, but in a more human form. And I think that that's usually where she connects with people the most. Johnny is someone who can't have a secret from her. Yeah. Johnny is someone who can't have hidden motives or betray her or use her, like she said. Uh, there's this one moment where Johnny was really, really receptive to her just sharing stories. Yeah. So she went on for like three hours just talking and talking about her stories, knowing that effectively the words she's saying don't even really matter, that she could be reading off a grocery list and Johnny would applaud if it sounded like that was the end of a thing to applaud to. Yeah. Um, but she likes that. She says Johnny is simply the best listener around, mm-hmm. and she actively takes advantage of that feeling. Mm-hmm. Again, there is that question of like the sense of control and the sense of being able to have a handle on her life that seems mm-hmm. to potentially correlate with Johnny. But there also is that little bit of sympathy, I think, that she actually has a point that she can speak aloud mm-hmm. uh, that she desperately lacks in other fields. It's unfortunate that a lot of the people that she feels she can open up to can't really offer her any help in return. Yeah. Um, we can have a temporary levity in the form of Johnny Horn. She can have a moment of peace. And don't get me wrong, there's something very valuable when you have a friend you can talk to and just vent. Yes. But at the same time, Laura needs more than just venting. She needs help. And Dr. Jacoby is just interesting her as a case study. Like, he just wants to learn more about her, but not really necessarily help her. Yeah. And... We get the sense that other people she goes to for her problems oftentimes either do nothing or exacerbate the problem more. Yes. And uh, we get also a little rare anecdote into Sylvia Horn, the most elusive character in the entire series, (laughs) potentially, where there's a moment where after that three-hour conversation with Johnny, she sees Sylvia Horn home early, and she's surprised not to see her with shopping bags in her arms and a plane ticket in her mouth. Mm -hmm. Which gives a lot of context for Sylvia Horn we never really had before. Yeah. That might have might be the reason why Sylvia Horn is gone all the time is because she's constantly on trips and shopping sprees. Yeah. Which reminds me a lot of Josie. It reminds me of Josie. It reminds me a little bit of Jerry, though, yeah. It, I, I don't know how much his shopping sprees were, but I can assume with mm-hmm. his budget for cheese pigs, uh, he might have had some extra money in his pocket. And that also reveals more about Audrey's possible upbringing. Yeah. That Audrey would have been the one in charge of keeping track with Johnny, would have been someone bounced between her father and mother, always distant physically and emotionally. Yep. And Ben probably enjoying the fact that he could just ship Sylvia away. <laughs> it is a painful reality in the Horn household, to say the least. And oof, ah, oof, ah, there's a lot uh, that we could even speculate about a few uh, instances with Laura. I mean, after the Palmers, the Horn family might be the most broken family in Twin Peaks. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, there's a lot of broken families in Twin Peaks, but... There's <sighs> there's a lot of people that need a lot of conversations and a lot of healing. Which is, I think this book is such a condemnation and rebuking of Cooper and Truman and all these people who are talking about how perfect Twin Peaks is and how the rest of the world is starting to crawl in. Yeah, no. But Twin Peaks is this great place. Uh, Ed is Ed and Norma are both in unhappy relationships mm-hmm. that they are married to. Uh, we have someone like Truman who is being actively deceived inside the background, though there maybe have been some love there. There is still that layer of secrecy that was never yeah. given from Josie. There's the fact that uh, James had a poor life with his mother. Can you name for me one healthy relationship here that is not Toad's relationship to the Double R <laughs> Diner. I think you can make a case that Doc Hayward and Eileen have a good marriage. 
There are obviously secrets to keep from their daughter, Mm -hmm. but what happened between Eileen and Ben was so long ago in the past that for everything we're given, it seems like the Hayward marriage is healthier relationship. Yep, we don't have a lot of evidence to the positive. We just have a lack of evidence to the contrary. I mean, uh, at the very least, we don't have to worry about on screen when the Hayward household pushes the two other daughters into the pit in the middle of Twin Peaks uh, <laughs> as they disappear at the end of the series. But like, yeah, yeah, I, I, I don't think I don't buy into what Cooper and others say about the town being special or perfect or great. I even question Jean Renault's lines about everything was simple before Cooper arrived. Clearly, that is not the case at all. I think simple in the respects of you didn't have to dig up the baggage. Uh-huh. Like this is where Cooper is openly open, he's exposing wounds. He's exposing wounds inside of Twin Peaks, and yeah. that is not going to be best for people. Let's just face it, if Cooper wasn't around, who knows how quickly shut away a situation like Laura Palmer's would be on how Ben may have been able to continue mm-hmm. his actions in the background, yeah. how Cooper would not have engaged with Truman to be so active in some of these roles, uh, how even like Wyndham Earl would not have even been involved. To, to use the apt metaphor here, there had always been this fire going, but I think he added so much timber to this fire that it could now ignite much bigger, much quicker. There's an explosiveness to this fire that had been simmering for years. As you escape the burning woods, you shout out loud, fire, run with me. <laughs> um, last thing I have on Johnny is he gets to say his first sentence with Laura. Yeah. And he says is his first sentence, I love you, Laura. Yeah. Which, how often does Laura hear that without there being an asterisk or an extra tag or some sort of prerequisite. Maybe there might have been like that asterisk maybe on Laura's end, but hearing out that what I would say is almost a pure sense of fondness. And I would not imagine any ulterior motives really from him. Mm. Yeah. I think that that is a very, Oh, it's a situation that I don't know what words Mm -hmm. I can put to. Sure. We mentioned Doc Hayward a little bit. He was in the book to some degree. Yep. Uh, not a very large character. Mm-mm. I know I've had my misgivings about Doc Hayward's personality, but Laura does seem to think of him as really the kindest man she's ever known. Yeah. And that she would be afraid to disappoint him. Not because he would do something, but more afraid of what that would mean that she stooped to that level to disappoint someone she respects. I think that Doc Hayward has an insight that though we may not agree on it, it certainly is an area of wisdom that I can see people looking up towards where he sort of sits people down and just says that things are never simple. Whether it is saying whether or not, like, Ben is the father, or if it is a situation with little Nicky, the devil that he is, that his situation was just far more complex. He's the one that sort of puts him his foot down in many situations. Of course, I completely disagree with, like, the situation with him and Rosenfeld. Mm -hmm. Yes. But there still is enough of that emotional knowledge and passion with the people of the community that I can see where respects like Laura would look up to him. Um, And yet he also is of that generation like Sarah Palmer that they don't feel comfortable talking about their feelings with their children. and They don't open up. And that sort of lack of communication between the parent and child creates a lot of problems for their daughters. It creates some problems, but I don't know how much of the problems would have been in retrospect as well. It's that closed case that I wonder how much I should trust Doc Hayward on 
how much he knows his own daughter and what might be able to assist or be best, or I, if it is simply a mistake on his part. And one thing I will say with, with clarity here, because I, I, you know, it's hard to sometimes gauge actual feelings when we do joke, we do comment. I, I do have my problems with Doc Hayward morally. I still think he's in the wrong a lot of the times he's talking to people and having these arguments. Yeah. At the same time, his errors, or at least what I see as errors, they're very human. They're very normal. They're the mm -hmm. kind of mistakes that parents can make. Mm -hmm. they're, they're not wicked, evil deeds. They're nothing close to the sort of evils we get with Ben and with Leland. Mm -hmm. Doc Hayward's problems and flaws, in my opinion, are the sort of mundane problems that plague a lot of child-parent relationships of dishonesty and lack of communication coming from a place of good intentions of trying to keep the family together, of trying to keep the family um, happy. But ultimately, I would still side on the argument that you keep that lie hidden long enough, it's just going to fester. I think that there is something to be said about his lines and the way that he communicates to people is maybe his outlook that these situations aren't necessarily something to be healed, but there are simply scars that must have a bandage over them for a time uh, that might need that cast or that medical attention. Mm -hmm. uh, and that certainly shows in his actions on, well, how he like puts up this perspective again with little Nikki or with Rosenfeld. As Ben says, time heals all wounds. Just put a cast on it. Put a Hello Kitty Band-Aid on it. I, I don't know if I necessarily agree with that, Ben, because his <laughs> scars yeah. uh, definitely do highlight with, hey, specifically the character, Doc Hayward. Yeah. Speaking of doctors, we've talked around him. Let's talk about him. Dr. Lawrence Jacoby. I mean, we don't have to. Like, we let, let's, probably should. Let, let's just like... I feel like we'll have a deep regret in our hearts <sighs> that has symbolically been cut in half and it's stuffed inside of a coconut shell. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So... We get a little bit of Dr. Jacoby toward the end. It's, again, not really a big focus. He's not in there a ton. Nope. It feels like Jacoby is one of several side quests that she engages in <laughs> that are temporary distractions. It keeps her mind busy. Yes. And they're also failed outlets. It's it's outlets that she's not able to heal properly. Yeah. Johnny is one that gets the closest, arguably, because it allows her a safe place to vent. Yes. She's also able to vent with Jacoby, but instead of a simple affirmation of love and interest and excitement to hear her, Jacoby's interest in her has a sordidness to it mm -hmm. that the way she words it, that Jacoby's fallen in love with the two Lauras. Mm -hmm. The thing that she considers a curse, the thing that's honestly made her want to die is something that he finds enticing, that he finds something honest in the way she expresses. He's almost putting her pain on a pedestal. Uh, and yeah. that's a very dangerous thing to do for anyone, let alone someone whose whole profession is helping people. It, He's much less interested in helping her than finding more about what's wrong with her. It seems that his general disinterest and disdain for his overall position, and with this very unique point, he is almost taking the route that it's going to give him something more than it will give Laura Palmer. Yeah. And that is not the way a doctor should behave. Right. Uh, hot take, I know. And the fact that they have to meet in secret like this, it's not to, like, protect her confidentiality. It's to keep this off the record, off the books. He doesn't charge her. It's just kind of this thing where he lets her come in and vent her feelings. He asks some questions. And like Johnny, he accepts her. But again, it's an inversion of it. It's a distortion of that where Laura's trying to shock him with the details of things. And no matter what she throws at Jacoby, he always forgives her and accepts her because at the end of the day, he believes that that light good part of her, again, that duality, yeah. he believes there's that duality, that light good part of her never meant to do those things. So it's okay, Laura. 
it's fine. <sighs> and I don't think that that's an appropriate way yeah. to really work with it. I think that there's more discussion needed. But really, I think Jacoby is addicted to Laura like Laura would be to drugs. Yeah. I think Laura is her, his drug. Yeah. Which, again, it's one of those things that early in, like, season one, they really explored that. And Jacoby's character never got back to that later. Nope. Uh, there was that moment where he said his investigation into Laura's death will be ongoing. And I, he meant not just the who killed her, but what Laura was to him and what it meant. And there was that sort of note that when he was at the funeral, he didn't want to go during the daytime. He didn't want anyone else to see. He just wanted himself with Laura in privacy. He doesn't like anyone else in this town even. And who knows? Maybe that just, like, that perspective continues to sort of fester and grow with him, if you will. Like, he might still have that active investigation for the rest of his life. Maybe he mm -hmm. might even just try to find someone who is like Laura Palmer or find the pure essence of what Laura Palmer was for mm -hmm. his own selfish needs. So, so far in here, would you say there's been any jarring disconnects between the book characters and how they act in the show? Because so far we've been doing a lot of comparing and kind yeah. of unifying. We have not had any instances so far that i can recall i mean we've been we've been recording this for a while now it's getting <laughs> it's getting to be a beefy boy it's a beefy boy but so far we haven't really had any moments where we're like mm, this feels out of character no i think that when it comes to these characters so far not much out of character there is some extra perspective yeah and i think that that theme is going to continue on but it like gels with what we know about them yes we're able to accept the new information and sort of schematize it in our brains schematize yeah like the gestalt Getting uh -huh. it all literary theory on uh -huh. here, right? It's that idea that we're able to take our pre-existing ideas of these characters. The book introduces an idea to us, and I think it's been effective so far uh -huh. in having that gel experience where we're not like, wait a second, this feels off. The only time we've really had that so far was with how 12-year-old, 13-year-old Laura writes. Yeah. Um, and that's less a disconnect with Laura and more a disconnect with how we think 12 or 13-year-olds write. Yeah. But considering we don't have any other 12 or 13-year-old Laura to compare to, Maybe that's just how Laura writes. Maybe <laughs> Laura was like that. Any other 12 or 13-year-old Lauras. If all Lauras could tell us how you could write. <laughs> if you're 12 or 13, don't listen, don't to, listen to this podcast. Stop. Please. Stop. Not even our other episodes. Don't listen no. to this. <laughs> but, uh, uh, but no, in all seriousness, so far, we've been able to gel the book into the show pretty easily, right? Mm -hmm. I, I'd say so, uh, so far. So the next character we have, I think, is one of the characters we get the most... I wouldn't say changes, but drastic perspectives on, for me. Yes. Uh, one of my favorite characters of season one, who I think was kind of uh, in season two, yeah. Bobby Briggs. Bobby Briggs. Love Bobby Briggs. I think he's amazing in season one, and part of it's because I know more about Bobby, and I was never really allowed to let on that I knew more about Bobby. Yeah. But when you don't really have the context <laughs> of him with Laura, it's easy to underestimate how much her death resonated with this kid. Hey, Khalil. Yeah. Hey, Khalil. Yeah. I want to call you out on something. Call me out. Your mate does a little slip up. Uh, what I talking do? about Bobby Briggs. You told me, like, in the middle of a podcast, you were like, hey, uh, oh, like yeah. Bobby Briggs. Like, yeah, he killed a man, right? He's like, what? No. who? Are, are you sure we're talking about the same person? <laughs> but no, it was in here. Okay, I thought there might have been a reference to him killing someone in the show. I mean... Good save on your part because it's uh, my save up on was my me head. just to pretend I was crazy. Yeah, that's all I did. That's a good save because I can believe you're crazy. So <laughs> kudos. Uh, but as far as this goes, yeah, no, Bobby. I mean, yeah, yeah that's what one. So thing. so Bobby has killed. Um, Bobby has killed. Uh, uh, but that's the later Bobby. The first Bobby that we get is a little bit more. Let's just say how usually characters seem to start out on this a little bit more pure. Yeah, yeah, we love to throw that word around. Every time we say the word pure, don't take a drink. 
<laughs> don't don't take a drink, please. <laughs> please. We do this it. podcast too long and we keep doing this. It's uh. not good. Um, so when we get the first intonations of it, it's actually more she writes about how he used to be in the past. We get in glimpses of him as a child. Yeah. So we get these moments described where Bobby would pull Laura's pigtails. Yep. And he made an effort to pass her by in the hallway more than he really needed to. Yep. He always had this sort of childlike crush. Yeah, I think that that's usually the short form whenever, like, trying to pay attention more to girls that they'll do something nasty. I was not the type of child to do that. Uh, I had not seen that uh, type of child do that. But I was developmentally exists. awkward and had no clue what I was doing socially. So I like books. I was confused. Anyway, so Bobby... Starts dating Laura when it seems like they're both age 14. We don't exactly know his age versus hers, but maybe yeah. he's a year older. I don't really know. Um, so 14, 15 in that area. It's the Twin Peaks babies I was talking about before. Yeah. And uh, at first, you know, Laura writes that seeing Bobby is fun, but it doesn't take very long for us to get the idea that a lot of why she thinks Bobby is fun is because he can be anywhere she wants him to be and he can bring whatever she wants him to bring. That sense of control, man. So it's that control you keep talking about as well as Bobby was an enabler who essentially, without himself seeming to be addicted to these things, yep. we know he would drink with her, he'd smoke with her, he would do a line with her, but it never gets across the idea that he was in it. He was in it deep. Yeah. And we can go by the rest of the show. We don't have moments of Bobby going through withdrawals. It seems like the drugs never did much for him, which I think is really telling that the reason he stuck around, the reason he did all this was Laura. Mm -hmm. It wasn't really Leo. They were friends, but like not that close, especially later on. Yep. And by the time he's still selling drugs at the beginning of the show, it seems like the last time he ever sold drugs was the beginning of the show. Yep. He and Mike split from that business as soon as Laura's dead. <laughs> but hey, Leo didn't let him forget. Right. There's the sense that Laura from the beginning wanted to use Bobby for the drugs. There was a sense of she liked him. She might have even had a sense of love for him, mm -hmm. but there was always that asterisk. There was always that extra, you know, clause involved in it that for Bobby wasn't there. Bobby's intentions very much were that he had a crush on this girl. He really fell for her. And mm -hmm. that is what it was. And he was willing to do anything. And it seemed like even socially, that was the sort of like emphasis, this little uh, let's say, uh, highlight relationship inside their overall social standings. Mm -hmm. And that makes it all the more sad for Bobby and his situations that do surround Laura. Everyone would look on the outside and think how good Bobby and Laura have it made that, you know, their football star with the homecoming Best queen. person ever. Well, soon to be homecoming queen later, but even yeah. younger. Yeah, super, super popular. And these two just seemed on the outside to be just a great couple. Yeah. But... The internal world of that was constant danger of running into dangerous criminals mm -hmm. and the drug selling and the unfortunate element that they were never really on the same wavelength emotionally. Yeah. That every time Bobby tried to put himself forward, Laura had to push him away. Yeah, no, there is a lot of like, I would almost say trust issues yeah. that ended up sort of bubbling over for Bobby in which I imagine that he may have probably emphasized that onto others enough and maybe even got a little bit of that Laura Palmer desire for a little bit of control himself. Yeah. Like having these other relationships on the side yeah. and also just trying to find ways in which he can find himself desirable to other people. He wants to be desired for the lack of desire that Laura gave back to him. And one thing that I think is important to highlight and honestly, I would say beneficial to the character of Laura and to the writing quality 
is that although it's difficult to deal with and talk about, Laura is a victim who also is a victimizer. Yep. And it shows a sort of cyclical complex nature that isn't just trying to make you feel pity for Laura Palmer. She's a victim. She's a victim. She's a victim. Yes, she is. But we see Laura corrupting others. I think we that- see Laura hurting others. And I think that's a much more dynamic and oftentimes realistic portrayal of how these things can turn out. Yeah. I think that there's a legacy to pain and to suffering and to the frustrations. I think that, there will be enough that will likely come out into relationships, especially social, when one cannot handle themselves, if yeah. you will. So, And I, I do wonder sometimes ethically, like, how I feel about Laura Palmer in the book. Like, the inclusion of the supernatural elements to me make, it, make me wonder, is it bad to dramatize so much suffering for the sake of this supernatural detective hokey soap opera show, is it almost this book a little voyeuristic and a little predatory in itself? But I also think that the place this was written from, written by Jennifer Lynch, I really think that she was earnestly trying to capture this character and her version of this character. Yeah. I don't think that she was doing anything morally bad with writing this. Yes. And I think that every reader is going to come to it with their own expectations and own ideas. Mm-hmm. I don't think this book is trying to exploit it. No. But I could see a moral argument against this book in the way it does things because in the real world, there are victims of sexual abuse and sexual assault. There are victims of drug addiction. Yes. And they don't have demons called Bob wearing denim jackets. They don't have owls and all this nonsense. Is it in some way mocking unintentionally real suffering by adding these fantasy elements into it. I don't think so in my personal interpretation. I think that having Laura juggle all these things and almost having this schizophrenic like mm-hmm. Bob being an ever presence around her. I think that I find stories like this interesting and enticing because having something present like that and having that sort of metaphor almost in like a mythological sense yeah. looking into uh, stories of people and these other creatures outside can be used as a coping mechanism for f- more understanding the general nature of people, spiritually or otherwise. I think that stories like this can be of import using elements of fantasy because sometimes it's very difficult to communicate what might be presently going on in someone's head. I think that's Fantasy is a shorthand that can be used effectively. But yes, at some times, if not handled well, it can downplay some issues. Mm-hmm. I don't think the case, at least in this book, is right. that case. Right. And I would say the show, for the most part, doesn't do that either. Mm-hmm. There are moments where I still feel that the lack of Sarah Palmer and lack of Ronette is suspect. Yeah. In place of, again, how Nadine is handled, I could I could very much understand criticism of how Nadine is handled. Um but going back, actually, you might be shocked. I actually agree with you for the most part. <laughs> yeah, I, I very much agree with you. I think that sometimes we use fiction, we collectively people. Mm-hmm. Uh, everyone's Just different. You. I don't, I don't mean to all. use we to assume you, the listener, included. You may or may not be. I don't mean to speak for anyone else. But yeah. generally, a lot of times people use fiction to understand things that you haven't lived yet, or to understand things you have lived from a different perspective mm-hmm. and contextualize your feelings. And I think sometimes mythological figures and spiritual figures like Bob, like the owls, like what Twin Peaks offers, it's a way to mythologize painful ideas and painful subject matter Mm -hmm. and give it a face, give it a voice. Mm -hmm. 
And no, it's not realistic in that regard. It's hyper-realistic. It's beyond real. Mm -hmm. And sometimes those over-dramatized, hyper-real depictions help us grapple those things more clearly. Yes. It's easier to talk about the thing that you can see rather than the thing that you can't see. Yes. A lot of times pain is unseen, and I think a lot of times Bob is pain manifest. Mm -hmm. And Laura Palmer's experiences are exaggerated beyond what most people would ever deal with. But it's the sense of reality in the fantasy mm -hmm. that I think stands out stronger than maybe if it would only been reality and no fantasy. Yes. Um, going back to Bobby Briggs. <laughs> going back to Bobby Briggs. The other Bob. Great, great side tangent, though. I appreciate it, Professor. Thank you. Um, you're welcome. Uh, Bobby, they have this sort of expectation with Laura that she didn't want to come on too fast to Bobby about sex because she wanted Bobby to still think she's this sort of innocent-minded 14-year-old girl. Yes. And even in their first encounters, though, you can tell that's not quite the case because she describes it as kind of looking for a place, quote, where she could go kind of crazy on him. She picks, like, this abandoned shed, and Bobby and them, once that happens, once they've been drinking, smoking, and they have their first time together in that way, Laura mm -hmm. is in control from start to finish. Yes. And clearly in control to the extent that she's not the virginal-minded, pure, quote-unquote, Laura Palmer that Bobby might have been led to believe. Yes. Not that Bobby was necessarily complaining in that moment, but that expectation already would be shattered in that moment, too. Mm -hmm. And concerningly, during oral, she thinks of Bob, and that's brought up. Yep. And I don't know if it was clear which way she was thinking of Bob and like how exactly, nor do I necessarily want the details. Like if we have to be honest, like the sort of explanation of Leland's right individual part and in the order of the list being that the first letter is B and the second set of initials uh, in order of sexual experiences is BB. Yeah. Uh, it's that is likely a similar case. And yeah, so that would mean is she then thinking of Bob as the receiver of the action, in which case she's manifesting Bob's image over Bobby? Yeah. Which, again, if you want to get interpretive and Freudian, the fact that she goes after Bobby when Bob is already a presence is, yeah. I mean, more than a coincidence, potentially. It's, yeah. it's a skeptical thing. Um, I've always found the use of naming in Twin Peaks curious when there are names that clearly overlap. And I'm sure when you were trying to do your detective <laughs> work about the naming and the initials, to this there's day. so many things you can overlap. Yeah. And right after their first time, which, again, Bobby was nervous before, he's astonished afterward, right after that happens, kind of in that post-coital ecstasy almost, Bob, it, Bobby at that point confesses his love to Laura. Yes. And immediately his motivation is to swear his loyalty to her. And Laura's trying not to listen to this. Laura desperately does not want that love inside of her to happen. Mm -hmm. She is fighting against it. And this is almost the moment. I mean, there, I don't think there's like one moment for this, but if I were to pinpoint one situation where Laura has that split, yeah. where Laura has a fracture point, yeah. this is where I would point it out. And it's not Bobby's fault. No. But it's, it's the fact that Bobby unintentionally is the catalyst for causing this massive division in Laura, or at least expanding it further than it ever had been. Yeah, because let's just face it, like, there's a constant theme of Laura seeking out ways of, like, control and power. Uh, let's just face it, there would be a point in which one could say Laura having someone very devoted to her in that fashion, saying that love and mm -hmm. wants that loyalty. 
that is like the emphasis of control. Now, whether or not like that might be too much to the point that she might be able to hearken that to Bob, or let's say, for example, a theme of Twin Peaks in which love being enough and that sense of love being indicative or the opposite of what might be desired by, say, for example, the Lodge, something pure, yeah. uh, that is something that she can't accept, both aids in the belief on why she's a resident of that Black Lodge and also on this divide on what Laura Palmer is. Mm -hmm. And part of the way she words it is that Bobby wasn't challenging enough. Mm -hmm. That Bobby is fun, is a good distraction, but there's part of her that feels he's too easy. There's not enough of a challenge. Yeah. And the other part of her is trying to rationalize this by the idea that she's going to save him for when it's safe for the nice Laura to come back, when the soft Laura to come back, when the vulnerable Laura can come back. That's when Bobby's love will count. That she's protecting him. Uh, I actually, I find it very interesting on trying to keep the safety of someone in her uh, to be important. If there's one thing I can uh, recommend for anyone out there uh, that wants to uh, have a few of these narratives uh, played around with, um, mm. a professor recommendation. I don't think that uh, Khalil has seen it himself. I'm not going to say too much to not spoil. Doom Patrol. Mm. Doom Patrol does have uh, some similar themes of trying to protect something so innocent inside oneself that I find interesting and can kind of compare to some of this Laura Palmer talk we're having at this moment. In the time of recording this in April 2021, where could a listener find this show if they wanted to watch it? HBO Max. HBO uh, Max. Not HBO, sponsored. Yeah, not sponsored. <laughs> used to be on DC Online, but it seems okay. that Warner Media kind of moved it over there. And the second mm -hmm. season is exclusive to HBO Max. And it's like a superhero show? It's a superhero show that's super dysfunctional, and it mm -hmm. definitely plays more with general emotions of beings rather than being a superpowered fantasy. Uh, <laughs> mm. if you want, uh, heroes to be, uh, good, competent, and completely mentally well, do not go to Doom Patrol because you're not going to find it there. Fair enough. Fair enough. One of the lowest points, I guess I would say for Laura in the entire diary, when I'm reading it, is how she responds to Bobby's adorations of love. Yeah. And that first night together, where when Laura says all this, she has to laugh at him and to laugh so hard it says quote she had to laugh at him hard until his eyes lost their light she had to laugh the light out of him that is oh let's just face it like remember how like leland had reacted like having to step around the corner and that deep laughter that yeah. just was missed in context i i just think that that is a very bob thing to do and laura's rationale is it's self-protection it's this idea that she needs to protect herself from feeling that way because that adds a vulnerability and a vulnerability is not what Laura needs right now. Laura needs to be strong. Laura can't be vulnerable. Bob will get her if she's vulnerable. She's got to laugh this boy away. And she even comments in the diary that she had to laugh at the face of a boy who might never be this honest ever again. And that's the biggest fallible part. I think that she might even be making excuses or trying yeah. to uh, fill in the blanks on why she has to do it. This is her reason. But at the same time, like the stronger thing is like, oh, well, thank you. And just like being a stance of a leader, but that would possibly have too much control. And she seems to be aware to some degree of all the layers of this because she's even wondering to herself if she's being tricked into ruining this. Yeah. She feels like maybe it's Bob doing this and have it not her. Uh -huh. So she goes through all these mental gymnastics. But at the end of the day, when push comes to shove in that moment where someone says they honestly love her and they would do anything for her, she laughs at them. Yep. And... 
again, knowing where Bobby is in the series, it says a lot. And I don't think that she really has that, at least that intense of a moment uh, beyond with the exposure of quote unquote love or what someone feels mm -hmm. or what one would feel is pure that has been a very important part of the show, uh, an invitation, if you will. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, it again recontextualizes what we've seen in season one and two where Bobby at Laura's funeral was over here waving his hand over the fire and the lighter and his father has that talk with him. And Bobby is like making fun of everyone around him. He's mocking them. He's basically criticizing that everyone did nothing to help Laura. And he does add himself to that. Mm -hmm. He says that he didn't do anything either. And you see him like mocking the, the Jesus crucifixion in the church. Yep. I think there are so many layers, whether Bobby's actor Dana Ashbrook knew it. I don't know how much of this character had been decided, but that's really one of my highlights for season one is how Bobby reacts at Laura's funeral. And yeah, it's immature. Yeah, it's it's a teenage rebellious phase and he's, he's out of his mind. Hey, fitting. At the same time, I'm glad Bobby said something. Mm -hmm. It may not have been eloquent. It may not have been the best worded, but he was willing to, in that moment, call out the fact that Laura was in danger. You all should have done something about this. I should have done something about this. And considering how many people were around that could have done something, yeah. I think there's probably more people to point at and blame than innocence in that crowd. Everyone wants to sit inside that dream, that false reality that feels nice, but when you dig deeper into it, there are problems throughout, uh, especially with Twin Peaks and especially with, like we said, comments with Truman. Yeah. It truly, it, Twin Peaks is truly a dream. Yeah, the happy, innocent girl who lives down the lane isn't uh, necessarily doing as great as you might think. No. Uh, <laughs> in truth, the presence of such need to be dug deeper into for you to have a better understanding of your full situation. Mm -hmm. And ignoring it is going to do nothing. Lack of communication is going to do nothing. That's fitting for Laura's story, and that's just fitting for Twin Peaks. I, I found this particular part of Laura's diary to be rather haunting in her descriptions. She says, quote, I'll become a professional at not feeling anything. I am lost. I am lost. And then dot, 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 there's a bit more. Yeah. But a stronger, more manipulating Laura is rearing her head. Mm -hmm. There's this sense of that she can tell that the stronger, more manipulating one is there. And I think it's that duality that you could argue that the more manipulating Laura is more like Bob. And I think that's true. Okay. At the same time, that stronger, more manipulating Laura is also her best effort at defending herself against Bob. Mm -hmm. And there's that sort of inner conflict that the more Bob-like she acts, the stronger she feels against Bob. Yes. It's that sense of she needs to attack others and manipulate others and use others to build up enough strength to keep herself standing. Mm -hmm. And it's an incredibly volatile situation, not only for her, but for everyone else that gets caught up in that tornado. Mm-hmm. And Bobby later calls her to apologize because he thought, you know, maybe I shouldn't have said it. Maybe I did something wrong. And she can tell on the phone he sounds rehearsed. Mm -hmm. like he's been going over what to say because he feels awkward. He feels bad. He blames himself. Yeah. And again, Bobby is no innocent in Twin Peaks. He killed a man. But at the same time, <laughs> it's hard not to look at Bobby after the diary and notice more of his perspective and his, how much he's a victim in this whole situation, too. Yes. And speaking of which, Bobby killed a man. Yeah. Uh, it was a drug run that went badly, and Bobby shot the shady drug man. And it was, like, not enough in Twin Peaks for it really to catch on traction in town. It's not something that people would ever catch him for or talk to him about. Mm -hmm. But in the background, canonically speaking, if we consider this book canon, that means that Bobby, prior to the first episode of the show, had actually killed a person before, and he just walks around town with that on his conscience 
and just doing his thing. Yeah. Uh, I think that that... Let's just face it, there's a lot that I think goes into that submissive nature that Bobby does. I've compared him to a leech, but almost out of necessity. Between trying to, like, deal with Laura Palmer mm-hmm. and just, like, trying to, I would say, hold on to whatever is left right. of that situation, as well as probably the complacency of making any deal he can to get out of situations. <laughs> Let's just say that might be an important attribute to be, well, defensive when mm-hmm. if the law catches up to him or if people catch up to Bobby for what he did. It really does make sense on why Bobby is the way that he is. I, I that's think scary. I think this book does a good job strengthening a lot of the characters who's in the show. Yeah. And one of the characters I believe is strengthened the most is Bobby. I, I think he's a lot more dimensions are added to his character than were there before. Now, how many people has Tim Pinkle murdered in which he seemed to be also a leech and tried I didn't, to I didn't want to spoil this for you, Professor, but... Oh, no. You know how you looked at the secret uh, history of Twin Peaks and it said Agent TP? Uh, you know, we're making this joke and maybe this will be the reality. Maybe this is the, like, you trying to throw yeah. something in my path uh-huh. to say, hey, what if it is? Ha, ha, ha. And so then professor, me less think about it? No, I don't want to think about the... Agent, Agent Tim Pinkle. Tim Pinkle. No. FBI. No. No. We don't know if it's FBI, but still, no. (laughs) (laughs) That's the lie. It's not FBI. It's some other organization. You know something I don't know. I know something that I don't even want to conceive. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So wrapping up Bobby here, I almost imagine like there's a, there's a meter where the, as the Bobby meter goes down, the Leo meter goes up and vice versa. Yeah. It really does feel like the more Leo gains in Laura's life, the more Bobby slips away. Mm-hmm. And, you know, talk about a character who's recontextualized is Leo. Absolutely. But, but Bobby here, you know, he's selling drugs for cocaine, selling cocaine on Laura's bidding. He's selling them with Leo is kind of in charge of things. But all he's really getting in exchange is that Laura will act more like his girlfriend. She'd go mm-hmm. on more dates, which is, again, it's so a dream. sad. It's a dream. Gotta hold on to that facade. There's a moment where Bobby kind of pokes through this facade and he says, you know, Laura, you'd choose cocaine over me. And Laura says, some days I would choose coke over you. And some days I would choose coke over anyone. And so, ouch. (laughs) Um, There's the idea that maybe Bobby's second best to cocaine is, is the best, most favorable way to read that. Ah, but he knows it. He knows this. He's not ignorant of this. It is such a heavy line for a character like Laura that I genuinely, it's one of the standout ones. And this is a 15 year old at the time saying this. Let's remind each ourselves at every point of the story. Laura's a minor. Yeah. 16 and younger. Yeah. It's so tough though, because unlike Donna, unlike James, unlike a lot of the ignorant teen Mm -hmm. characters, Bobby knows a lot more of what's going on and knows his place. He knows that he's just the one who gives drugs to Laura. And he's, his vantage point is, well, can we at least go on dates sometimes? Like he's trying to use the little bit of leverage he has as her mule yeah. to, to have some time with her. It, it's a sense of comfort that he genuinely has. But at the same time, there's also that little side relationship that he has with Shelly Johnson yeah. in which whether or not like it's a situation where he's getting something that Laura does not provide him, or if it's a situation where there is an emotional high of being with someone that is tied to someone who could probably kill him yeah, uh, and is his personal drug. I think it's really layered. I mean, Laura sees how Bobby looks at Shelly. Laura knows what's going on. She suspects that they're either going to have an affair soon or already have been. Yeah. And she basically, in at least her diary, gives him her good graces. She's like, that's good. That's yes. a good thing. It's tough because it, it feels like, for me, 
there's there's that layered element where if he goes for Shelly, you have the yeah, there's the high of it. There's the high of going after the forbidden love that, you know, if he find, is found out about it, it could kill him. But there's also the element that potentially, even unconsciously, Leo corrupted his love. Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't Bobby want to go after Leo's girl almost as like an exchange? There can be that. And you can also say that they're just in similar situations. Shelly and Bobby can relate a lot yeah. for their darker other halves. And also Shelly being the housewife, being the stay-at-home housewife. She's someone that can fit that angle of purity more than potentially uh, more potentially Laura can yeah. at this particular venture. There's a moment where Laura writes, quote, falling in love is like waving a white flag to your enemies and saying, I give up. Mm-hmm. And she basically says that she can't fall in love until Bob is dead for sure. She refuses. And again, if we think that love is something that can combat Bob, if we think his love is something that could fight it, the fact that she thinks she has to wait for love until after Bob is gone, uh-huh. she's getting rid of the greatest weapon in her arsenal to protect herself. She's removing the best chance she has in that regard. Yeah. And if she would have, and of course, you want to be careful. You don't want someone who's desperate to jump into love too readily and end up hurting themselves more. But outright refusing love, outright refusing affection is so much going to hurt her mm-hmm. that, again, it reminds me of that last episode where. Cooper says to Truman, I have to go alone into this place of darkness. I think Laura had a similar mentality where she has to go in alone. Mm. She can't afford to face Bob with any vulnerability or anyone around. Yeah, like neither of them were ready for their respective situations. Oof. And sometimes the world just comes crashing down a little bit too soon. And she's even described at this point that almost the sex has become an act of revenge more than love. So even that's been distorted. Yeah. Which for a lot of the time in the book, again, is that dual nature that the sexuality of Laura Palmer has been a double-edged sword. Mm -hmm. It's been, on one hand, a force that's given her vulnerability to dangerous people, particularly dangerous men. And it's also been something that has given her a comfort and given her a solace. It's something that she has power and control over in a life where she feels she has no power and control. Mm -hmm. It's always dangerous to her but it's always one of her few joys. Yeah, it's one of the few situations where no matter who the person is she is facing, other than Bob, she seems to be in complete control and she is able to have whims against these individuals, no matter how dangerous they may be. And none of these situations are healthy. None. None of these are healthy. Zero. Bobby was the first and the closest to being that way. But as soon as he confessed anything love afterwards, she laughed at him and shut him down. Mm Mm-hmm. Leo Johnson's interesting then in that regard that he never makes any pretensions of love with Laura. No. There is uh, never any mentions of that. Even as friends, they're not really friends. But at the same time, Leo can be clear with her. Leo yes. can communicate with her. One of the most important parts, I think, that involve Leo is that when things turned sour, uh, there was a point where Leo had tended to her. Mm-hmm. So I think that these contexts are important because, hey, this is not a side of Leo Johnson we've seen. Leo Johnson's very interesting in this book, and in having this context of him, I, I don't mean to be rude to the actor. I think Eric DeRay did a greater job later in the show. Uh-huh. But early on especially, I don't know if he could have conveyed the layers of this Leo we see in the diary. I would have loved to see him try. I would have liked to see him more with Jacques Renault because that's the important part. Every other person Leo has, he has some form of need of power or antagonism to him, whether it's law enforcement, whether it's people he's working with, Mm -hmm. whether or not it's people that may betray him. But someone like Jacques Renault, someone like Ronette Pulaski, someone like Laura Palmer, I think that he can be the most himself, the most calm. 
And that is something that we get because we are actually in Leo's house at mm -hmm. this point. Well, Leo's mental house. We've been to Leo's house. Nothing has really yeah. gone that well. <laughs> and Bobby is the one who introduces Laura to Leo, which, of course, is another unfortunate cause and effect situation. Or unfortunate souls. And he warns her, Laura that Leo's into some real stuff. Like, we don't want to mess with him. Yeah. Uh, and, and what do we that do? intrigues Laura. Yeah. It does not put her away from that. Nope. And Leo's the one to first introduce Laura to cocaine. Mm -hmm. So again, Leo having that sort of effect on her. Leo is hosting these sex parties. Uh, there's one in particular that's described where Laura goes there and there's this woman that everyone's attention is on uh -huh. and she's making this bet. I think it was like $100 that no one could satisfy her. Mm -hmm. And Laura in front of everyone, including Leo and including Bobby, and almost reveling in the fact that it's in front of Bobby, uh, she steps forward and takes that bet. And long story short, uncomfortable subject matter going quickly, we get to the stance that Laura is dominant in that situation, very affectionate, very much calling the woman beautiful, very much trying to please her, mm -hmm. and ends up winning that bet, mm -hmm. suffice it to say. Again, we don't have her directly write Bobby or Bobby's reaction, yeah. but we get the sense that Bobby might be like, pretending to be into it, but probably deeply hurt. Yeah. And Leo probably legitimately into it and probably no contradictions there. That's the mm -hmm. sort of thing that intrigues Leo more in Laura, mm -hmm. that she's someone that has that party aesthetic in her. It is something that he can definitely relate to because he is someone who is very involved with these vices. Yeah. So, yeah, no, that 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 was a stepping stone in a certain direction. And, and I feel like we only really know the tip of the iceberg, considering that whole list of, of uh, names, we know that there are all these encounters with Leo's parties that are probably half the list is probably because of Leo indirectly yes. or directly. Yes. And, uh, or that or one eye jacks mm -hmm. and Laura's, you know, they, they have these range of activities that happen where she's blindfolded and it's not really clear, like how many people she was with that. She never even found out who they were after the fact. Yes. Um, and she said that, and this is what's, again, concerning and also very enlightening about the nature of this book. Again, released in, like, 1990. It's crazy. This is a spinoff for a TV show on CBS that aired opposite of Cheers. Yep. And it was released in 1990, but she says that these parties had access to all sexual fantasies except farm animals. The fact that she even has to mention that wasn't on the table tells you pretty much everything else was. Yep. Nothing, it's not new, right? Even in the 90s, there was this sense of, all those niches and fetishes were all on the table at those parties. Oh, yeah. There's drugs. There's underage individuals. There's likely alcohol involved. There's uh, there's just, like, all sorts of... Oof, um, I'm sure Caligula would have blushed at some of the stuff. Yeah. Ugh. And there's also this sort of, again, flip of the coin here where, although it is dangerous that these people who are often friends with Leo could very much do her harm. There's obviously the risk of no, you know, the safe sex isn't happening. Mm -hmm. There's the risk of STDs. There's obvious risks. Yes. She is a minor, but in all this darkness, there is that silver lining where this is a joy to her. Yes. This is something that she turns to because in these moments where people are physically close, she identifies it as almost the sort of need to be held that everyone has. And this mm -hmm. was a moment where all those roles of gender, of age, of background, fall aside to just this moment of pure physicality. Yes. Again, very dangerous, very wrong, yep. very questionable. Yep. But I think it does a disservice to the book to not acknowledge the fact that she turned to it as what she saw as a positive. Yes. There were costs, 
but it was a net benefit because it gave her enough of a joy. And I would say distraction, but I think it's it's more than a distraction. She she genuinely sought after that sort of welcoming feeling. She sought after these feelings that I would imagine she would think that she'd be able to overcome her own personal problems, which I think may have just been an effect of some of the stimulants she was taking, mm -hmm. that this was important to overcome her personal darknesses. Yeah. And there's a moment where Laura writes that she and Leo are cut from the same cloth. Yeah. And she says that at this point, later on, she sleeps with Leo more than she sleeps with Bobby, and Bobby sleeps with Shelly probably more than she sleeps with Laura. With, and he sleeps with Laura. Yep. I, you I, get the idea. I get the idea. It's a horrifying idea, but I get the idea. And it makes me wonder how much Shelly ever found out about Bobby. Like, how much was Bobby able to lean into Shelly to share these pains? I would almost wager nothing. At the point really? of the show, mm -hmm. I feel like Bobby was taught a lesson that when he opens up emotionally to a girl he's in love with, he will get laughed at. And I really don't know if he ever felt comfortable with Shelly to tell her the sort of things that we know from this diary. I think that when it comes to season two, and when he just sits down and tries to be at the level with Shelly, that was his own emotional breakthrough. I think that that was the very next time it's he an was improvement. willing to be... It's, yeah, it's a next step. I don't think he ever fully got there again. I think he's recovering. Yes. But I don't think he ever sat down with Shelly in the course of season one or season two and told her about these sort of pains. No, but... I, I don't know... I mean, I know Shelly knows that Bobby was involved with Leo to some extent. She knows mm -hmm. his habits with drugs. I don't know if Shelly ever did cocaine. We know Shelly drinks and Shelly smokes, but that's the extent of it. I think there might be a level with it because the way that he may have seen Laura with Leo and then seeing him potentially losing Shelly to someone like Gordon Cole, that's when he, something might have snapped inside of him. But does Shelly know that he killed a man? Uh, who knows? Maybe that's what they're laughing about <laughs> at the end. Maybe. Maybe <laughs> as they grab each other's faces and bark. I, I don't know what other reaction you would have when you <laughs> killed a man. That's fair enough. <laughs> what are your overall thoughts then on Leo in the diary? My overall thoughts on Leo is that I am very glad that I got an alternate perspective on this man who is just mainly aggression personified mm -hmm. because he's in his natural environment in this. Not to mention... I'd say that he's far more loving to Laura than he would ever have been shown to be loving to Shelly. Uh, yeah. Shelly might have seen something inside of Leo and connected, but it might have been in the same way that Bobby was to Laura, and the difference was in the point where I said, I loved you, like, Leo was the one to let that continue and may have, like, leaned into that. And maybe he did feel something more than Laura, but that's cut from the same cloth, right. whether it is fully real or if it's just a suede perspective of Laura. Mm -hmm. I think it's close enough to say that there's a reason why Leo and Shelly are together. It's it's very hard because we don't really have the objective distance. We have Laura's perspective. Mm -hmm. How much was that tainted and colored and how much did her expectations of people get swayed? There, there's a moment where Leo hit her harder than she expected and it was a moment of vulnerability to her. And it wasn't Leo that noticed at first, but mm -hmm. when Leo was notified, it seems like he responded with care. The one who seems to be a little more attentive to Laura's state is Jacques. Yeah. Um, Jacques gets a lot of characterization too here. There's a point when she's involved with Leo that she notices that she feels a sense of belonging when she's in dark places 
with sleazy men who are actually babies. Yeah. And she describes the sort of feeling of the, the men who are bigger, but almost acting like that baby type personality, crying to her, calling her mommy. And she identifies Jacques as being one of those types. That Jacques is that big man, big baby type. But she also describes Jacques as someone who knows how to please a woman and knows how to please a woman's body more than Leo. And I think what seems to be implied about Jacques here is that more than anything else, her relationship with Jacques is one of tenderness where he seems entirely devoted to making her feel good. And again, it's disgusting morally because again, how old is he versus how old is she? Yep. But from her perspective, Jacques never hurt her. Now, mind Not you, from her perspective. Yeah, uh, there is something said about Jacques in which he really knows how to please a woman, so there seems to be a form of intimacy found with him. One thing I'd like to make note is that inside the list of Laura Palmer's experiences, I can't recall if the list came before or after the experiences. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure it came after. Yeah. Uh, was that... Jacques Renault, like JR, is not found inside of it. It is a wonder because Jacques Renault is noted inside the book and noted as Jacques Renault. But I wonder if there either A, there wasn't enough intimacy or that she would account him for the book. If B, if it was an oversight from the author in which JR was not added to it. Or C, the Renault family is a little bit notorious for criminal activity. Maybe, like, Jacques Renault isn't his actual name. Maybe it's just something that he kind of goes under, and Laura knows something a little bit more about this guy that we don't know. It, I mean, Jean Renault is known as Jean Renault. And I don't know about you, but whenever it comes to crime families or people who commit crimes, they don't really like to advertise their true names. The hard part, Professor, is that I can't reveal anything that has or has, like, I can't say if it's going to be proven or disproven or anything like that. Gotcha. I can't wait until the episode of The Return of Twin Peaks in which we get him flashing his ID at every single character. I, I don't know. When he's dead. I don't know how you want me to respond to this. From the grave. If I respond clearly with a positive or negative on your third guess, is that a spoiler? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know whether or not I would necessarily need the answer. It's just personal, like, insights on my I, end. I feel like I need to say there is no other name given to him in the Twin Peaks wiki article on him. There is no other name and when it lists the family they're all given Renault as the last name. Now is it just those few Renaults or is there more Renaults of note? There are more Renaults. Okay. It does appear to be the actual name of a family. I again I'm curious if like there's no other material that gives another name. So if it is the case, yeah. it's consistently Renault throughout everything else. Yeah. And this would be the only indication we would have. Yes. If it's enough you think to make that case, then make that case. That, that case is fair to make. Okay. But there's nothing that's going to substantiate that more later is all uh-huh. I'm going to say. Okay. And I, I don't I, like I to give spoilers. I didn't expect it from a dead man personally. Yeah. I don't want to give spoilers, but I, I do feel like I need to give an opinion on that side That's because fine. the idea that it's an oversight is startling considering that Jacques Renault is such an obvious person who slept with Laura Palmer. And the idea that they didn't go that far is also bizarre considering the way that she writes about him. Like the bullet baby. So I'm inclined to believe it's an oversight, okay. but it's a hard to believe oversight mm-hmm. because the way she describes how he pleases women, I think it'd be weird if she wasn't on the receiving end of that. Yeah. The only way I can imagine is if she didn't let him, but there was never any indication in the diary that was the case. Mm-hmm. He was clearly into her. 
I mean, mm-hmm. there was a moment where he gave this present in, in the bra mm-hmm. to her and had drugs and had a wand in there. Yes. And again, things to make Laura feel good. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine he hadn't had that involvement with her. Mm-hmm. The only initials that do have R at the end mm-hmm. are MR, Mr. Or MSR. I don't. Meanwhile, the ones that have J at the beginning are JH, JH, JS, which is the closest letter to R. <laughs> yeah. And that is about it. So, legitimately, if you have any thoughts, listener, on what's going on here, there is a page. What, what's the page in your copy there? In my copy, I should say. In your copy. In the copy of the latest uh, paperback issue is on page 132. What date is this? February 1st, 1988. So if anyone has any guesses as to why J.R. or J, another initial R for like a middle name, why that's not in there, please let us know. And tell me how I'm right. Tell us how we're both wrong and tell us the <laughs> truth. Um, very, very curious yes. on that. Either way, we get the sense that Jacques is very sweet on Laura. And again, he was the one that noticed Leo slapping that Laura wasn't into that, that Laura was hurt. Yes. He's the one that has them stop. Yes. And again, I don't want to romanticize Jacques. He's a predator. Like at the end of the day, he gets involved with Laura when she's like 14 at the oldest. Right? Like maybe 15. 14, 15, 16. All these numbers are bad. Yes. So no matter what we're saying here, just to be completely clear she for any listener. She's a susceptible individual yeah. that has gone through so many drugs. Alcohol has been in poor situations with poor crowds and has emotional issues that have not really been handled in any good light. Yeah. So Jacques is only, quote unquote, nice in the extent that he seems to be a figure that makes her feel good in her life. And to her, he's someone safe to go back to. He is nice in the respects of this dark, dark world that she sits in. It's something that she can relate with in the overall activities and placements that there are. There's still areas in which like consent is obviously definitely questionable being that, you know, she is a minor, Mm -hmm. but uh, it's enough of a agreed upon term for Laura Palmer that seems to be giving Jacques a lighter light than what others may give him. There, there's an incredible section of the book where Laura's in more danger than she's ever felt with, felt with Bob before, where she has these mm-hmm. uh, men who are threatening her, basically, and she had been hitchhiking. Yes. And they pick her up, and I, I'm not going to summarize the whole story, but... Again, if you haven't read the diary or haven't read it in a while, this is, in my opinion, one of the highlights of the book. Okay. And um, it's it shows the extent to which Laura's found herself in danger and how she's able to get through this danger. And it's one of those moments where I do think it's calling out the predatory nature of a lot of these men, yeah. where there's a moment where basically they imply that she should have known better than to try to get away with hitchhiking when she was wearing those clothes. It's the <sighs> typical line of it's what she was wearing. She was asking for it. It's in there. And they describe it that she's like poured into her clothes. It's very creepy, very, very dangerous language. Yep. And these men she describes as being big enough that they could swallow her. Um, she's able to lure them away. She's able to get one of them away to the truck on pretenses of sex, knock him out with a beer bottle. We don't even know that guy's dead because he's bleeding when she leaves. Yeah, everyone else was like uh, fully asleep just because of how much her constitution allowed her, despite her scenario. It is the scariest night of her life up to that point. She describes it as being scarier than Bob, and she goes to Jacques' cabin. She goes to Jacques for help. Yep. And again, 
I think that adds an element of tragedy that knowing that she is killed with Jacques and Leo in attendance like that night, like Jacques and Leo are at the scene of this whole situation. She was <sighs> like, that's what where her comfort was. It's, it's, she was not safe there. No, she was safe that one time as safe as you can argue that was, but she was running out of safe places. Mm-hmm. And it is definitely questionable on like, we, we do understand that Leland Palmer was the killer at the end of the day. Um, how did that necessarily progress? Was it that maybe Jock's cabin was more safe for her during the time, but when Leland caught up to her, let's just face it, it's her dad. Mm-hmm. Her dad could have caught up to her at any point. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know if I even give too much credence on that not being your safe place. It's just saddening that it was. I just think seeing these viewpoints on Jacques and Leo is so revealing, not only to their characters, but also Laura's characters, Laura's character relationships with them. Yes. And also the nature of the town and the nature of the motivations of these people. Mm -hmm. The last one kind of in that main trio we get is Ronette. Yes. And I almost wish there'd been more Ronette content in the book. <laughs> you always wish for more Ronette content. I know, because I think she's an interesting character that doesn't get a lot of time in, in the light. Yes. Um, that being said, I think what we're given is, it paints a pretty strong picture that she was almost the second Donna figure, the inverse shadow Donna, right? If we're going to use our reflection yep. idea. That um, she even, from the beginning, compares her there. In the diary, she says, Ronette was the only girl aside from Donna at the time she would see naked. And Laura knew Ronette from before. She liked mm-hmm. her. And enough that she liked her that Ronette might have been the origin points of Laura's first um, sense of sexual curiosity toward women. Yep. Um, if not the first, one of the first. So having this figure that was tied largely in her mind to her interest in women mm-hmm. and then having Ronette reciprocate, yes. having Ronette um, someone of a similar age, maybe a little older, it's unclear, mm-hmm. Um being kind of understanding and being on her side of those things Mm -hmm. compared to, again, someone like Donna who would giggle or would be uncomfortable with anything even remotely close to what the things that she and Renette would talk about. Yeah. Um, And it's when she goes after the the hitchhikers I talked about, when Laura goes back to Jacques' cabin, it's Ronette who's the most supportive Mm -hmm. at Jacques' cabin. Uh, Ronette's the one who writes to her the next day after when when Laura probably passed out from all the things that had happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's Ronette who writes and follows up to make sure that Laura got help and that Laura was okay. Mm-hmm. They form what seems to be a genuine friendship under these circumstances. But Ronette, we don't really know her backstory. We don't know how she got where she is. Yeah. We know the end result. We know that she was on drugs. We know that she'd been using drugs, I should say. Yes. We know that she was also as sexually active as Laura, and again, likely a minor. Yes. By the way things are worded. But we don't know what Ronette's trauma is or baggage. We don't know where Laura com- where Ronette comes from. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that is an interesting element. Laura, while is a victim in the shadows, we at least from the diary perspective know who she is. Yes. Even at the end of this with Ronette, we still don't know what she went through. We don't know what she went through. We've seen her parents, but not m- so much the interactions, and there's not much to be revealed. Now, mind you, that might just be the general nature of the relationship with Ronette, Leo, Jacques, and mm-hmm. Laura, in which nothing really needed to be known about their past. It's all about the present and the feeling of then and what they got from each other at those times. Again, probably the most supportive people towards Laura, but I don't think that that was the type of support that she needed at the time. And Laura even notes that when she tries to go sober for a bit, it's hard for her to talk to Ronette when she's sober. Yeah, because it's that disconnect and that's troubling. Right. 
Laura, again, to use Twin Peaks phrases, she's between two worlds, mm-hmm. right? She's caught between these two different lives that she lives, these two different worlds that she lives in. And the more she gives into one, the more the other one calls her back. Mm-hmm. And somewhere lurking on the threshold is Bob, mm-hmm. um, continuously pushing and polling her. Mm-hmm. And we get information on the perfume counter. Um, we get information that she likes working with Ronette. She thinks Ronette's really cool. And it's through this perfume counter situation that she gets involved with Emery Battis, or if you're reading the diary, Amory Battis. Yep. And not really a lot of flattering words for him. Uh, she describes him as a fruit that is slowly rotting. She describes him as a constant pest. There are not many, like, flattering ways to put Amory Battis. Now, mind you, it might not be the opinion of the town. She's the, he's the shadow Tim Pinkle. He's the shadow Tim Pinkle, sure. I don't know what that means. Oh, uh, oh. Uh, uh, I will say right now... Uh, For all those Amory Baddest fans out there, uh, look forward yet again to welcome to Twin Peaks. I I need to say something (laughs) about Amory Baddest. You've been peeking through that book. I've been peeking through that, and bah. Bob. No, not Bob. No, I refuse to call his name. Beware of Bob. Bob. (laughs) (laughs) I'm doing a robot with my hands right now. I'm not sure why. I don't know either. Uh, Apparently, We've been podcasting for too long. Never. And thus, the red curtain closes. But this isn't the end of our adventure, listeners. We still have a fair amount of the book to go, and so we are going to be splitting this episode into two parts. So please, join us on our next time of scheduled programming, or on just the very next episode, if you are from the future, as we continue to go deeper into Laura's diary. <laughs>